Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We live in a world where the news is at our fingertips, where we're one click or swipe away from the latest headlines. But how often do we stop swiping and scrolling and just listen? It's the difference between knowing what's in the headlines and understanding how it got there. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take, Al Jazeera's daily news podcast, where we bring you the context and the people behind the global stories that matter. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. I don't like guns. I'm I'm sure that they're fun and all, but they mostly exist to kill things. And I'm biased. I I, I have a personal bias against getting killed. And so I've been unmoved by the so-called debate around gun rights. I I just tune out. I got to tell you, I don't care much about sports shooters or or livestock control or self-defense. I just want less guns. No guns would be totally okay with me. No guns for cops. That sounds good too. Whatever the gun guys have to say, I just find myself thinking that like, you're making this too complicated. If we got rid of the guns, we would get rid of the gun deaths. Japan, for example, almost no guns there and almost no gun deaths, like around 10 a year. And yes, one of those gun deaths was their former prime minister, who was recently assassinated. So I do take the point that maybe it's impossible to get rid of all the guns. But you can get pretty damn close. And that sounds about right to me. Because, I may have mentioned, I don't like guns. I do not like guns in a boat. I do not like guns with a goat. You get the idea. I don't like them. And I'm not very open to hearing from those who do like them. And I said so on a recent podcast. And I heard back. I heard back from a lot of you, actually. I was surprised by how many gun owners listen to Canada Land. I was unsurprised by how informed and reasonable these people were. There are always people in in this listenership who know way more about any given topic than I do. These people in particular, they wrote to me and they asked me to just listen, just consider that there might be a valid other side to this whole thing. So that's what I'm going to do. Gun owners in Canada are celebrating right now. They just got the Liberal government to scrap a legislative amendment to the Liberals' new gun law, Bill C-21, an amendment which would have made tons of guns illegal, many of them semi-automatic weapons, the guns of choice for mass shooters. On that very day, when the gun guys won that battle to have that amendment scrapped, I spoke to Ian Runkle, a lawyer and gun rights advocate who runs the popular gun guy YouTube channel, Runkle of the Bailey. 
Today, you're going to hear from that conversation, and you will hear from a lawyer who is focused on Indigenous rights. You'll also hear from some of those gun owners who reached out to me, to us, the guys who wanted me to keep an open mind and hear them out. I'll try my best. Wait for it. This episode is brought to you by Kelly Douglas, Lindsay Taylor, Kevin Brightwell, Savannah Ferguson, Paul Blackburn, Shannon Hill, Catherine Koch, and Libris. Hi, I'm Libris, a book designer in Victoria. Canada Land earned my support with their commitment to independent journalism and diverse voices. I've learned so much listening to Canada Land Back, Commons, The Backbench, The Monday Show, and anytime Emily Nicola says anything. Thanks, Canada Land. My name's Ryan and I'm an old college student. One of the main reasons I got my license was I wanted to get into sport shooting and now that's kind of been all taken away. I've now fallen into doing some trap shooting and skeet shooting, but that kind of whole three gun competition has been removed from Canada and been banned. People think that you can just take any old firearm and go into the woods and shoot it. That's not the case. That has been the case for a while. I'm going to say this, like, I enjoy our licensing laws here. Like, I don't want what the U.S. has. I don't like what we have. Like, I think, I like that the red flag laws are there for people who shouldn't have firearms. I like that we have background checks for people who, like, I don't want to prohibit what people can own. I want to prohibit who can own them. Because to me, like, I've been put through the background checks. So I have both my restricted and non-restricted. And if I'm okay to have one firearm, why am I not okay to have another? It feels like, there's other ways we could go about gun violence in this country because I'm scared of it. Like I, I see what's going on and I'm terrified of it. And, but it feels like they're going after the wrong issue. Jesse Brown hit the nail on the head when he said, it feels like we're getting gaslit with multiple laws in this country. And when Trudeau came out and said, like, you don't need an AR-15 to bring down a deer. To say a statement like that is so frustrating because of the fact that not only is that caliber of, like bullet too small like it's 223 which is illegal to hunt deer with because it's not powerful enough to be able to take down a deer humanely but they're banned you can only use them out of range anyways so what why make a comment like that and set up this entire thing in a poor light My name is Ian Runkle. I'm a criminal defense and firearms lawyer. I have a YouTube channel at Runkle of the Bailey. Ian, what does the change mean for you personally, the government dropping this amendment? Do you have any of the guns that would have been criminalized? Uh, several. Um, I think it would have been five or six. I would have had to uh, toss out. Any semi-automatics? Yeah. So I've got a couple of SKSs. One of them is signed by the guy who played uh, Jane Cobb in Firefly. Do I have your attention? It's a Callahan full-bore auto lock. Customized trigger, double cartridge thorough gauge. It is my very favorite gun. I call it Vera. Ian, why do you need to go pow, pow, pow? What's the problem with just going pow, ch -ch pow, ch -ch pow? 
I always say that need is the wrong comparison because we don't apply need to anything else. We don't say, what sort of computer do you need? All of these things evolve. Uh, we're talking about firearms with modern ergonomics that are that make them more comfortable to shoot and more sort of practical. Uh, Semi-automatic has been sort of the the common standard. It's very, it's ubiquitous in terms of firearm design uh, for modern designs. It's just, it makes sense. The point is, I'm not harming anybody by going target shooting. And these firearms are almost never used in crime. I mean, that might be true in as much as mass shootings are rare crimes, but they're serious crimes. The Dawson College shooter had two legally purchased licensed semi-automatics. The shooter at the Ecole Polytechnique massacre killed 14 women with a legally obtained semi-automatic hunting rifle. 14 women. Uh, more recently, the Quebec Mosque shooter had two semi-automatics, both legal weapons, though the magazine, I understand, in one was illegal. In Portapique, that massacre uh, was taking place with uh, two semi-automatic rifles. The rifles themselves are legal in Canada, though uh, the shooter didn't have them legally. And most recently, uh, that guy here in Vaughan, Ontario, who just killed five of his neighbors, he reportedly used a semi-automatic. We still don't know how he got it. So when we're talking about mass shootings, it seems like semi-automatic weapons are the weapons of choice for these men who want to go and kill as many people as possible as quickly as possible. Not even getting involved in yet in, in my position on this or opinion, that would be the why. Why is the government coming for semi-automatics? It's because, and I think it was this was suggested by the timing of when they announced these amendments, it's because mass shootings take place and they take place with these guns. Well, if we're talking about the timing, uh, they had these amendments lined up before the shootings. Oh, yeah, but they could just wait for the next, because there's going to be one, and there will be another one. This is a bit of a ghoulish activity, because it's intended that they wait for this to do something they wanted to do anyway. Yeah, but it's it, they can only do that cynical political maneuver because there are mass shootings with semi-automatic weapons, which I'll give them benefit of the doubt that they want to stop mass shootings with semi-automatic weapons. Banning these won't eliminate mass shootings and certainly won't eliminate mass killings. And in fact, firearms, although uh, when you look at the history of mass killings, the most lethal ones don't involve firearms at all. They involve fire. Uh, you're not going to stop people like the, uh, you know, Manassian who used a van. Uh, and you're not going to necessarily meaningfully affect things. If people are unable to acquire firearms through legal means, these guys are not, they're often portrayed as having snapped. And snapped is the wrong word because typically these things are planned for years ahead of time. And so we see uh, with the ones out east recently, uh, this was somebody who planned things for years and was known to the police to have acquired illegal firearms. And in fact, this is a very common trend that we see where these guys are known to the police. They've had multiple reports in and that, in fact, the RCMP and the police have done nothing. And what we end up doing is we get these situations where the police do nothing uh, about people. They have reports repeatedly about being dangerous. And they then proceed to say, well, we did nothing, but now we want more power. Should the cops have done more in port -Pique? Yes, they should have. Does that mean that we should not be looking at how easy it might be to get a semi-automatic or whether they should be legal? Like, that's just two separate issues. 
they're very much related issues because if you're going to allow for distraction from what I think is the bigger issue, like are these powers that they have enough if they were used properly? And I would say, yes, they are. Uh, there isn't a need to go after every target shooter and every uh, and tons of hunters and so forth just because the police have failed so spectacularly in some of these circumstances because Porta Peak could have been stopped. Yeah, but others couldn't. The reason for these efforts is not simply because cops have failed in that one instance. I don't know what the cops could have done about Bissonette. And I think that your suggestion like, well, the killer will just get something else and we can point to occasions where they've you know done it with knives or done it with vans. I think that if you look to the states, the prevalence of very serious weapons of war in homes readily accessible, handed to people, people's parents having them, and then they have this epidemic of mass shootings all the time. I'm not saying that it's going to stop these types of events, but but don't we want to stop as many of them as we can or slow them down as much as we can? The epidemic actually started with the media coverage. And the biggest factor that we see is actually the media response to these. And so if we're talking about how are we going to slow this down, that would be a good place to look. We could look at Canadian law because gun crime rates in Canada went up every year for five years in a row from 2014 to 2019. In 2019, a new gun control bill got royal assent and made it harder for people to get guns. And then the gun crime rate went down by 5% in 2021. And that's the same year that the overall crime rate went up by 4%, but gun crime went down. So it looks like gun control works. I have never actually seen a drug dealer using like a legally owned firearm. It's just something that doesn't happen. When we talk about gun crime, we have to be very careful as to what kind of statistics we're using. And firearm uh, firearm statistics are an area where you will see a lot of hedging or a lot of fudging. I'm not sure which stat you're using there. Stats can. Again, I don't know what how they're defining gun crime there. Crimes in which a firearm was present. That's how they define it. Okay, so are we talking like storage? Because I have a very different view as to the social implications of somebody who forgets to put a trigger lock on as they, you know, when they're storing something, as I do of somebody who is carrying a gun to go and carry out, say, a, a gang shooting. That's a very different scenario. Ian, if that's the case, that they criminalize these very innocuous things of you're not storing it properly, and then the cops are invading people's rights because of the gun control law, then you would see the instance of gun crimes going up. But in fact, it went down since they put this law in place. You get different enforcement at different periods. This is the problem with some of these statistics is that they end up being quite faulty uh, in terms of having the discussion. The law that came into effect in 2019 had to do with screening for gun owners. It tightened up the screening protocols before you could obtain a firearm. And after that, we saw a precipitous drop in gun crime. And that drop is a regression to the 2018 levels. Um, and before that, in 2015, you can see it was lower. 2013, it was lower. Uh, we're talking about some variation over time. I can tell you that that screening tightening will have affected almost uh, very few people. What they basically said is that uh, somebody who had, uh, you know, depression 30 years ago suddenly had to indicate, okay, yes, I was treated for depression 30 years ago when they apply for a firearms license, whereas 
previously they only had to report it within five years. Mm -hmm. So that was the change. It got harder. The red tape and the process became more difficult. When we're talking about the rate of firearm-related violent crime, the vast, vast majority of that is people without firearms licenses. I live in a rural area in Newfoundland. I have a license uh, range about 10 minutes from my house. I have access to um, hunting within walking distance to my house. It's really hard for someone who lives in a major urban center to relate to me. And there's lots of us in the country that use semi-automatic firearms for hunting. There's lots of us that use semi-automatic firearms for sport. Every few years, the government of the day bans firearms. They say, these firearms here, these firearms are awful, they're dangerous, no one should own them. And that's fine, you know, I understand that there are some firearms that we should own. But then a couple of years later, another government takes that list. The first government said, yeah, these firearms are okay. And then they say, no, we've got to ban this selection of firearms. And every couple of years, those goalposts get moved. And either they need a distraction or they need, have a problem that they can't really solve. And they're going to point to these firearms. And they're going to say, we're going to ban these firearms because they're bad. We already have extremely good gun control in Canada. However, the changes in Bill C-21 don't affect criminals. The changes in Bill C-21 are only targeted towards licensed gun owners. They're only targeted towards people that have already gone and done their safety course. They have a license. They get background checked regularly. They're already subject to transport requirements. They're already subject to storage requirements. My biggest issue with Bill C-21 is that it doesn't in any way affect criminals. It only affects people who are already following the law. If you live in an area like if you live in a major urban area and you're seeing crime happen in your neighborhood and you're saying to yourself, I want to do something to stop that. And I absolutely understand that desire. Um, but I don't understand how Bill C-21 helps with that because Bill C-21 is only targeting people who already have a firearms license or doing things legally. I look at Bill C-21 and I really think that it's um, a result of the urban-rural divide in Canada. Okay, I want to talk about that specifically, because that's the main point that I hear from a lot of gun advocates. Why are you picking on me? I am a legitimate user of firearms. I use it for sport. I use it for hunting. Your problem are street criminals who don't follow laws anyhow. I hear that argument, and I think it's a faulty one, because that does cover one category of gun crime, but there is another kind of gun crime. And I accept that it's a much more rare kind of gun crime. But it's a pretty serious one. It's the one I'm actually more concerned about. I'm not really all that worried about being shot in downtown Toronto because uh, I got into in the crossfire of, of some kind of gang war. I am worried about a mass shooter coming into my workplace, my grocery store, my synagogue, my kid's school. And I, I recognize that happens very infrequently, but it happens a lot in the States and it does happen in Canada. And some of those cases are people who have no criminal connections, who would not know how to buy a gun on the black market, but often the use case is their dad has a gun or they're a sports shooter, they're a hunter. So I'm okay with making your hunting experience a little bit more inconvenient or less fun in order to make it that much harder for that one outlier to have the means to kill as many people as quickly as possible in a place where I'm living my life and my family is living their lives. Like that, that's an okay trade-off for me. 
Sure. And do it to Julia has always been a popular approach. You know, everybody is not concerned with the uh, the rights and interests of people who are dis- unlike them and who like different things. This is why it is typically very easy to uh, oppress small groups. You're not oppressed. I'm not saying that I don't care. I'm actually recognizing that you do have an interest. It's like individual to individual, hunters are saying, look, I know that I'm not going to be the next port pick guy. Leave me alone. And I'm like, you know what, Ian? I believe you that your gun is never going to be used in a mass shooting. But if I'm looking at a thousand guys like you, I don't feel as confident because I know statistically that once we reach a certain number, maybe it's 10,000, one of you will be that guy who snaps or your gun will be used by one of those people who snaps. So yes, I am saying you're going to have to make a sacrifice of some level of convenience because the rest of us have a much stronger interest in like breathing. The issue is, is that when we look at the numbers, the numbers of people who are killed in mass shootings uh, pre-Columbine and Columbine had a tremendous effect because of the media coverage, it basically doubled the number of these sort of shootings in the States. And that's because these killers very much look at the media coverage and they build on that. The government can make it so that there are a lot fewer semi-automatic rifles around. That is something that is feasible. And I don't think it's irrational to think that that's going to have an impact on these types of crimes. I mean, what do you do to protect yourself from lightning when you go outside? I mean, if your position is there's nothing we can do because it's just like lightning, if that's the position, that what you're saying is, fuck it. There's nothing that can be done about this. It's just going to happen. No, you're mischaracterizing my position entirely. When we're talking about the comparison to lightning, it's because lightning kills about as many people as, uh, you know, or at least pre-Columbine, the rate of your likelihood of dying in the States in one of those events was equivalent to your likelihood of dying uh, from a lightning strike. The media contagion effect has had an impact in the States uh, and a substantial one. But uh, I think that uh, part of the way of dealing with that is uh, having a more responsible way of covering those things in the same way that they have a more responsible way of covering suicides. The media changed how they covered suicides in response to the fact that it was discovered that there was strong contagion effects. It has been now studied that we see similar contagion effects with respect to these mass killings. And so uh, the problem that we end up with is that these things end up being the sort of a focus that they become the only thing on the news for a substantial period. And we go into these deep dives on, you know, who did it in this very public way. And so you've got people who largely feel anger and not heard and, you know, helplessness. And I'm not trying to say that these are, that we should have sympathy necessarily for these uh, individuals, but it is important to understand where they're coming from, what is motivating them. And so they really want to sort of get that out there. And basically for this certain small because uh, this is always a terribly tiny portion of the population, which is one of the things that makes it difficult to sort of study these uh, these people. But when you end up with this, you're sort of giving them what they want and you're providing a path to them to get something that they don't have otherwise. 
And so, for example, there's a, a campaign of to try to not name these shooters to prevent them from getting infamy. Because when you actually look at Manassian, I've got a video series where I went through his interrogation, but Manassian went through and actively cited uh, several other people as inspirations. And in fact, you see uh, lots of these guys cite these people as their heroes. When you see, uh, you know, Virginia Tech, there was similar aspects of people referencing, uh, lots of people reference Columbine. And I don't really know how we deal with this, but I think we need to uh, to look at this. And I think the push to try to keep people's names uh, sort of out of it and to stop making them into these kind of villainous, um, you don't want to make them Bane. You don't want to make them into, you know, the Joker. You don't want to make them anybody that somebody could look at and say, this is cool. You know, that I, that you know, people talk about like wanting to achieve high scores over others and i'm going you know we should i'm wondering if we should maybe have more focus on some of the negative aspects of their life like okay great how long did this guy wet the bed if he was you know and just try to make this uh less something because we always the media wants to sort of push these guys as the biggest scariest thing ever when perhaps we should be having more of a focus on trying to make them pathetic or trying to make them, um, you know, in some ways, a post-mortem humiliation might be a better way to, to go about it. I mean, look, I can tell you that with Portapic, you did not hear that name very often. And there were lively, real debates within newsrooms that are not about how can we make the story as big as possible. There's hard to imagine a bigger story. But reporters responsibly trying to balance the public's right to know what the hell just happened. And people have a right to know, and we represent that right to know. And also very much keeping these issues in mind. We are in a very difficult position in the media. The lack of detail in reporting on something like Portapic opens the door for the RCMP to write their own narrative about what happened. And so we do want to give timelines and we do want to explain and we do want to speak to news readers and audiences who just want to know why, how, is there anything that we can do to stop this from happening again? And invariably that does take you into the specifics, especially when you start talking about accomplices or where the firearms came from, the role of the loved ones. Uh, how do you tell that story when you're anonymizing things to that degree? These are live debates in newsrooms. And I do think there's been a very big shift in the tone of coverage. What I don't know is what impact that has had in preventing copycats or contagions because the real new factor and the audience that these guys are often playing to is their online community. And sure, it's a nice feather in the cap if you are the big scary bad guy on the nightly news. But they are live streaming these things for their fan bases. They are leaving their manifestos in specific places on the internet. And that is the sense of community or legacy or infamy that they're playing to. And I think that, you know, all we can do there is, is, is have law enforcement looking for those people because often they do announce their intentions before they strike. And I think the Canadian uh, media has been more responsible with it, although I would push back on the... Uh 
the RCMP still has largely been able to write a lot of the narrative in ways that uh, benefit the RCMP and harm public understanding. But one of the big problems that we have is that Canada as a country is a, a fairly small country next to our neighbor. And we get tons of our media through the filter of the U.S. media. And the U.S. has taken a much less responsible approach to it. This episode is brought to you by AG1. Listen, taking care of your health is not always easy, but it should at least be simple. That is why for months now, I start every day by drinking AG1. I take a scoop of this green powder, I mix it in a canister with water, shake it up, and I drink it. I get hydrated and I get energized and focused and ready to take on the day knowing that I have vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. These are things that science tells us we need. They are also things that I don't necessarily get every day outside of my AG1. Listen, if there's one product that I'm going to recommend that will help you elevate your health, it's AG1. And that is why I have been partnered up with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try it now and you'll get a free welcome kit that includes a shaker bottle, canister, a metal scoop, along with five free travel packs. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 along with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. That is drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. Check it out. Hi, I'm Yvonne. This is clearly a very divisive issue that, you know, leads to deepening the line between rural and urban voters, left and right, and all of that. And in these exceptionally polarized times, I see it as not only an irresponsible waste of money, but uh, potentially just directly harmful to the fabric of Canadian society. The reality is most urban dwellers have never been around a gun, have never held a gun, haven't grown up in an environment where guns are part of the culture, part of their tradition, part of their way of life. Nobody in the city really hunts unless they're very wealthy and can afford to travel to hunt for recreation rather than for subsistence. Uh, whereas in rural communities, they're a way of life and they're uh, an invaluable tool. You use them to protect your livestock, you use them to hunt for food, which in my opinion is is the most ethical way of sourcing meat that's available to us. I mean, unfortunately, these high profile mass killings do happen. And the reality is that a motivated enough killer is going to commit this kind of crime with the tools they have available. Now, semi-automatic weapons certainly are, are an effective way of, of doing that kind of crime. But also look up the five, let's say, uh, high profile mass killings in Canada that have happened in recent memory. Two of them have been not involving guns at all. I mean, it sounds callous to say almost, but the reality is that these kinds of mass killing events are statistically an outlier. These aren't a threat to your average Canadian on a daily basis. But it's not that mass shooting is such a huge regular issue here, and it still is at historic high levels in the States and is a blight on their society. And because we inhale whatever they exhale, I don't want that to become Canada. Ian, why should we not do everything we can to stop that from happening? The thing is, in terms of public policy, everything is a give and take. Every dollar we spend on these bans, and I mean, these bans, I don't think have anything to do with the current government having a pursuit of public safety. 
they have a lot to do with the current government having a uh, a policy of we think that we are struggling for the next election and we think that this is a better issue to run on. But come on, that, as an aside, that, that's just a completely I'll be the first to say that there are political intentions behind everything they do. But why would you question that they don't want more mass shootings? Of, of course, they want fewer mass shootings. Why wouldn't they? I don't think that this bothers them one way or another, except other than we, they think that this is a place where the conservative party is weak. That's really the driving goal here. But in terms of whether or not this is going to save lives, this is going to cost billions of dollars. And I can tell you right now, give me that billions of dollars and I can save like this next month more lives than if we had eliminated every entry on the Wikipedia entry for list of massacres in Canada through time, including the ones done by the government. I'm sure there's lots of ways money could save lives, but what would you do to deal with gun deaths and mass shootings in Canada? Like, should we do nothing or is there a better plan? What's the better plan? If you want to cut firearm homicides in Canada, fix our drug policy. And what I mean is, you know, I'm full bore on this. I would say go and legalize because then at that point, most of the gun violence in Canada is related to the fact that we've banned certain things that are of high value. So we've taken this entire economy and given it entirely to crime. I hear you. Uh, people use guns to settle problems in drug transactions because, like, they can't call the cops. I, I understand. But we're still talking about a certain kind of gun violence there. I mean, gun crime in cities would maybe go down if we legalize drugs, yes. But gun crime rates in cities are already going down. The place where gun crime rates are going up is in the rural north. Firearm-related violent crime is now at its highest point since data became available in the year 2000. And I'm going to go ahead and guess that a lot of that gun crime, maybe most of it, is coming not from illegally smuggled handguns that, that crossed our borders from the states, but from legally purchased long guns, semi-automatic rifles in the rural north, which are the exact kind of firearms that the government just tried to ban. So my question to you is, you've given me, I think, a practical answer to what you would do about gun crime in the context of drug crime. But what, if anything, would you do about mass shootings? Is there anything to be done? I think the focus on that needs to be on uh, police detection, police response, because what we see in, in a lot of these cases, uh, uh, certainly the worst cases are associated with a negligent police response. And that was the case in Polytechnique. That's the case in Nova Scotia. That's the case uh, over and over uh, where you see that the police response is fundamentally uh, poor. So Nova Scotia, they hid from the public what was going on because they didn't want the public to realize that this guy was driving around in a, uh, in a police vehicle, basically. Polytechnique, they sat and waited for a lengthy period such that the coroner said that it made no difference what kind of firearm he had because he could have been using a musket that he had to, you know, that because they left the guy. Come, come on, come on. This is the coroner who said it doesn't matter if he has a bolt action firearm because the police took so long to respond that he had lengthy, lengthy periods. 
but it just it just defies logic what you're saying. If somebody comes into a school with the intention of killing as many people as possible, if they have to reload, if they have to cock the rifle versus just spraying a room full of of, of people with bullets, one is much more dangerous. That's the point of a semi-automatic is that it kills much more efficiently. That's the point. I would disagree that that's the point. When you look at Uvalde, uh, Uvalde is another of these examples where had the police followed what should be the response, and in fact is supposed to be the, the official response, they would have saved a ton of lives. But instead, they sat and waited. And so it didn't matter, you know, in terms of the type of firearm in that circumstance, because what ended up driving it is the police sitting there for a very lengthy period. You know, you've got the video of the cop there working the hand sanitizer. And in the case of the Nova Scotia incident, we could have had that as zero if the police had actually responded to the people who reported this ahead of time, going, this guy's dangerous, this guy's got a grudge, this guy's got all of these you know, issues going on, and he's got illegal firearms. They could have raided him. I don't disagree that we need to look at the policing in these situations. I don't disagree that we need to continue to improve media handling of these cases. But when it comes to the legality of semi-automatic rifles and the access to semi-automatic weapons, what I'm hearing is that, in your view, we need fewer restrictions. Is that correct? We need fewer restrictions on the range of weapons available and fewer restrictions on obtaining one. Well, I haven't said fewer. Um, Easier access? Well, I think that the restrictions that we're putting on don't, um, like these new restrictions, don't actually address where people are, uh, are being killed. If you want to stop homicides, all of this money could be better spent elsewhere. And you would get a, you know, 10 or more multiplier on your dollars for saving lives from violent crime by putting it into other places. And so the question is, why should we save one person instead of saving 10 people? This is, I think, the fundamental problem is we're doing this the dumbest ways we can because we're looking at sort of showy events instead of more commonplace ones. No, no, no. That's, that's You're just moving the goalposts. We're not trying. That's not the exercise is we've got this much money. How do we save as many lives as possible? There is something specific in particular about these crimes that terrifies people and makes life horrifying. And it's okay that there are specific efforts to stop this kind of crime. That's okay. That's a worthwhile pursuit to try to stop the next mass shooting. To say, well, why don't you just put that in healthcare? Or why don't you put it into stopping drug-related gun crime? That's the debate you want to have, but it's not the actual issue that's being dealt with. And it's a legitimate issue that's being dealt with. It's okay to try to stop the next mass shooting. Sure. But it's not okay to say we're going to have more deaths because we're pursuing that instead of pursuing something else. And I mean, what this comes down to is ultimately who dies in which kinds of incidents. Why are we so terrified of these incidents as opposed to people shooting each other on Toronto streets over drugs? Why, why are we terrified of mass shootings? You got to ask that question. Why does it get more attention when somebody dies in a mass shooting, which is very a rare cause of death, versus on the reserve? 
versus on the reserve in, in what in what instance? Say, you know, we have gang problems on reserves. We have gang problems in big cities. We have gang problems all over the place. But people are less focused on that because there's issues as to why we focus on these things. And I think that largely uh, it's a question of which lives we value over which ones we don't. So when we're talking about this, you do have to focus on what you're looking at. If you're trying to address vehicle deaths, you're going to want to look at like how many are caused by speeding or you know impaired driving, you know, more common things versus how many are caused by a wheel falling off. Unless that wheel falling off turns out to become a common thing, you're not going to spend billions of dollars on what happens about if you get hit by a wheel in traffic. You know, this is important. And you can say, listen, these are scary, these are terrifying, but that doesn't mean that the people are worth more. Of course it doesn't. Of course it doesn't. But then the problem is, is if we're going to spend all of our attention on that. We're not spending all of our attention on it. We're just spending some of our attention on it. These are all false constructs. We're spending a disproportionate amount of attention. We may be spending a disproportionate amount of attention because there is something specific about these crimes. Mass shootings are fascinating to us because they are terrifying because they are random and chaotic. We are less afraid of crime-related, drug-related gun deaths because those of us who are not involved in that kind of industry feel like it's very unlikely that we're going to be a victim to it. But the fact that every now and then somebody just starts killing their neighbors or targeting a group of people because they're women or because they're Muslim is absolutely horrifying. Or the fact that sometimes a shooter goes into a school, it makes people feel unsafe fundamentally because of the randomness and the chaos and the hate of that. That's why we're fascinated and that's why we're trying to figure out what the hell we can do about it. And those are not wrong impulses. There's going to be costs. Like if they're going in and they're trying to take every SKS from the reserves, there's going to be people who are killed in that. That's going to be a straight up cost of that. You can't send that many boots at people. I'm sorry, the police are sending guns. Like when you're saying we want to send the police to do these things, you're wanting to send violent people with firearms to accomplish a, a task. And that has predictable results. I'm open to all solutions, including a conversation about uh, whether cops should have these weapons as well. Fundamentally, when we look at the history of indigenous rights in Canada, I'll bring up OCA. Because I'm one of the people who thinks it's a good thing that the Oka golf course didn't get expanded. And I can tell you that had the indigenous people there been disarmed, it would be a golf course right now. And we'd probably have Trudeau there doing fundraisers and doing a land acknowledgement on land stolen from the Mohawk. When you look at that protest, that protest was not cleared in large part because it was armed. Hi, I'm Naomi Sayers. Uh, I'm an Indigenous uh, woman lawyer, uh, criminal defense lawyer as well. I am a firearms owner. I have my restricted license and I do shooting with restricted firearms. So I represent uh, individuals um, charged with a number of offenses, some of which include firearms offenses. Current firearms legislation is a very urban-centric approach to firearm safety. It's totally devoid of the northern and rural context. In terms of, you know, domestic violence survivors, particularly in northern and rural regions, 
Even the Canadian Association chiefs of police have gone out and said the weapon of choice in those situations are hunting rifles, not handguns, when a domestic violence survivor is experiencing violence in the home. And we know that against Indigenous people in rural areas as well, right? I think that those realities are completely devoid of those contexts. And the people who put it together obviously have no idea how firearms work, have no idea. And I 100% bet that they probably never shot a firearm in their entire lives. So when I moved home back from Toronto, one of the first things I did was I went and got my firearms license because I knew that I wanted to help individuals. That that's a that's a way of life up here. You know at least somebody who owns firearms, whether it's sport or hunting. It is sad when you have a large metropolitan city with a lot of gun violence, but to overlay it and apply it across the country, you're missing out on the reality in terms of rural and northern ways of life. The amendments I think that happened in August, uh, withdrawn about two, three weeks ago, it overcaptured some of those common use hunting rifles. So I lived and worked in northern Alberta, an hour south of the Northwest Territory borders. And during their hunting and fishing season, their community hunted for the entire community. So it wasn't hunting, you know, for your family. It was they would hunt and they would bring back enough meat and sustenance for the community. They would distribute it to the elders, they would distribute it to families in need, they would take care of it, they would have feasts, and then they would use whatever little bit was left for ceremony. Obviously, we have to ask, how did they <laughs> kill the moose? Well, you know, hunting rifles, and that's the reality. Indigenous nations feel unheard. Indigenous nations are pushed to the wayside, and that's exactly what this legislation is doing. Should I take from this then, Ian, that you are of the mind, and I know that this is a popular concept amongst uh, many gun advocates, that an armed population is a population that is in a better position to advocate for its rights and that there are benefits to our democracy to have an armed population. And that's, that's, that, that itself is a goal. Is that, is that a position that you take? Uh, to an extent, I agree with Orwell when he said that the rifle above the fireplace in a worker's cottage is something to be preserved, that it's an element of liberty. And um, I encourage people to look at the history of union struggles, to look at the history of, uh, you know, again, indigenous pushback against some of the... Uh, th Look at the history of the U.S. civil rights movement. It was good that people had guns in, the, in these instances is what you're saying. I'm glad that we got here because I think that when we just talk about hunting and sport shooting, it can obscure the fact that there is an ideology at play and it, it is one about preserving your rights by having an armed population. And, and that, you know, at least let's know where you stand with that. There's groups in the U.S. right now who are seeking to do violence, uh, especially to the trans community. And as a response, the trans community, at least a portion of them, have focused on we need to also be armed. Uh -huh. And there have been numerous instances where people have shown up to do violence to those communities and have been repelled. People who are oppressed can't necessarily rely on the system that is oppressing them. 
And that becomes a a consideration, at least. I see the future you project of uh, hundreds of armed special interest militias, and it scares the living shit out of me, Ian. The problem is, is that you have the people who wish to do wrong and who are inclined to violate the laws are able to arm themselves without too much difficulty. And I will give you an even scarier future, which is... In the near future, you won't be able to stop people from having firearms by any means of control because it's becoming far too easy to create a firearm out of nothing. And the tools for that are going to become easier and easier and easier. Improvised firearms have always been a thing in Canada and in the States, but the quality of them is going to increase to a degree that uh, makes them indistinguishable. The media loved the story about the ghost guns, print them at home with a 3D printer. This will soon be a ghost gun. An untraceable firearm with no serial number anywhere on it. Homemade in just a few hours using a 3D printer. Police across Canada are worried. More than 100 were seized nationwide. Have you ever dealt with coyotes attacking your livestock? Uh, n- not in a month, at least. No, I've never dealt with uh, with with coyotes. You can't make a statement that there are no costs, that this is something that is basically a freebie or a gimme when you don't understand those people that are going to be affected. But affected how? Like, can you point me to the case where the guy shot the coyote, but he didn't have a semi, so he got mauled? Like, does that exist? Has that happened? It's not got mauled. You know, if you're dealing with predators who are going after your livestock... You're trying to deal with a group that is, uh, you know, and so the ability to make follow-up shots and get multiple coyotes is important. But you just go pow, chick, chick, pow, chick, chick, pow. It's okay. And have you ever, have you ever done that with coyotes? Uh, you know, not in many moons. I'm guessing never. No, never. So, I mean, the problem is, is, Coyotes will scatter, right? And so the difference between uh, five and three is significant when you're talking about, you know, coyotes scattering. I think that there's a lack of good faith debate because when I hear the argument about feral hogs or coyotes or these practical considerations and the practical reason for needing semi-automatics, I don't believe you. Because I think that what you're really concerned about is an ideological argument about your fundamental human rights being intrinsically linked to your right to bear arms. And I think that that's actually what you care about. I'm a firearms lawyer, right? So I end up dealing with all sorts of issues in terms of who has firearms. And that could be anything from, you know, the guy who gets busted because he's, you know, a bad guy dealing drugs and has firearms. But I also talk to, you know, and I can tell you, there's like my comments on Oka. Um, and saying that it's a good thing that it's not a golf course. There's plenty of people with semi-automatics who would think that those are the, you know, that I'm way out, off on that. I know it's all you people with semi-automatics can sometimes disagree with each other. And that's what concerns me. So as a final question for you, is there any kind of gun that you think should be banned? Bans as a, uh, I mean, right now in Canada, Civilians can theoretically own just about any kind of gun under certain circumstances. You could potentially own a, you know, a heavy machine gun. 
And if you're wondering who could own a heavy machine gun and why would they do it, uh, movie armors is the category that, that that would apply to. If you go and see, for instance, Movie Armaments Group, they have a collection of firearms, some of which would surprise you because we film things. When was the last time that a film armorer committed a crime in Canada? Uh, basically never that I know of. So it sounds like a no. It sounds like the answer is a no. You don't think that there's any weapon that should be banned completely. I think that we can have a real discussion on what kind of regulations to impose on which kinds of firearms. You know, if we look at, say, uh, a Vegas-style range where you can go and rent a full-auto gun at the range and shoot it there, I don't see an issue with that. I'm fundamentally a pragmatic guy. And when I say I'm a pragmatic guy, like, I am pragmatic to the extent of, I think we should legalize drugs to solve some of these violence issues. That's my kind of level of pragmatism about this. And so I think, give me any solution so long as it's a solution that looks like it's going to do something about the real problems and not one that looks like it's driven by emotion. Thank you, Ian. So, oh, no problem. That's your Canada Land for the week. Listen, if you value this podcast, please support us. We rely on listeners like you paying for our journalism, our analysis, conversations that go deeper. We take a lot of time to do this work right, and we want you to support it. And as a supporter, you'll get premium access to all of our shows ad-free. You'll get early releases. You'll get bonus content. We just posted some great bonus content. Does Jesse Brown have an opinion on electoral reform? And if so, what is it? And is it very similar to his opinion on climate change? (laughs) <laughs> I do have an opinion on electoral reform. You'll get our exclusive newsletter discounts on Canada Land merch, invites and tickets to our live and our virtual events. More than anything, you will be one of the people who actually pays for journalism and is a part of the solution to this country's journalism crisis. And that keeps our work free and accessible to everybody. Come join us now. Click on the link in your show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join. You can email me at jesse at canadaland.com. I read everything that you send. We're on Twitter at CanadaLand. Our website is at canadaland.com. Tristan Capicione is our audio editor and our technical producer. Additional production and reporting on this episode by Cassidy villabrun Baracus. Our managing editor is Annette Egeofor. I'm your host, Jesse Brown. Our theme music is by SoCold. Syndication is handled by CFUV, 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. You can listen to Canada Land ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Prime.